Shall we pray? Father God, thank you for your word. And we pray that your word to us this morning would be life-giving in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the uh, next few weeks, we're going to be spending time with the letter that Paul wrote to the new church in Thessalonica. This letter is almost certainly Paul's first letter, and it's the earliest Christian document that we have. It was written about 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, it was put down in writing even before the Gospels. And 15 years is very close. It's a bit like someone today writing about the impact of something that happened in the year 2000. It's a letter which does four things. First, and this is what we're going to look at today, Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonian church. Second, chapters 2 and 3, Paul reaffirms the authenticity of his ministry and his love for the Thessalonian Christians. Thirdly, he urges them onto sanctification, onto living a holy life. That's chapter 4. And finally, he reassures them about those who have already died and about the coming of the Lord Jesus. So in chapter 1, Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonian church. He's been worried. You see, we're told about the founding of the church in Acts chapter 17. He'd gone to Thessalonica and he'd preached in the synagogue for three weeks. His message is all about Jesus. He teaches that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, God's ruler in this world. That he died and that he rose from the dead. Some of the Jews believed, but the majority rejected the message. So he starts to preach to the Gentiles. They hear and they respond. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so a small congregation is established. But then trouble comes. Trouble usually does come when God is at work. Several of the believers are arrested and accused of treason and of saying that there is another king to Caesar, namely Jesus. They're released on bail, but it's felt that it would be better for them and better for the church if Paul moved on. Paul fears that this new church will be crushed. So after a few months, he sends Timothy back to find out what is happening. Timothy returns with bad news and good news. The bad news is that the persecution continues. The good news is that the church has not been crushed. On the contrary... It is flourishing. And then Paul writes immediately our letter and he gives thanks to God for them. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And he particularly gives thanks to God for them, for their faith-inspired works, their love-inspired grit, and their hope-inspired perseverance. So what relevance does this letter have for us? We live in very different times. We are not a new church. We are not persecuted for our faith. We are not in a community which worships idols. Or, or are we? We do not live in a world which worships stone gods, but we do worship other gods. 
gods that we have made. It's easy to identify what those current gods are. We look to the cathedrals of those gods, the biggest and most impressive buildings, Canary Wharf, our shopping centre cathedrals, at the amazing science and research facilities of the pharmaceutical and technological companies. Today, we worship the gods of money and material prosperity and possessions and power. What saddened me in the debate about Scottish independence was that at the end, it all seemed to come down to whether people would be better off in an independent Scotland, or one that remained part of the Union. It was finance, big business, markets and personal wealth that decided the result. Not vision or ideals, not principles of history or of shared cultural values, or of the relative values of autonomy or interdependence. And elections, we are told today, are won or lost on the economy, it's on how well you or me feel we are. How well off we feel we are. We've forgotten God, and so we live for the only thing that we can live for, the here and now. So it's obvious that our gods will be the things of the here and now, the economy and capital, science and technology, education, military, might, health and fitness, possessions and entertainment. It's not wrong. Of course we want to live in a prosperous, safe society, have the highest standard of healthcare possible, and do the absolute best for our children in our education system. When the people of Israel were in exile in Babylonia, Jeremiah urges them, pray for the welfare of the city in which you live. The problem comes when we put those things in the place of God and we forget God we're like the beloved who has been given a ring by the lover. A lover has made it for us because they love us. It cost them a great deal. It is a most beautiful ring with intricate detail and design. It was made specifically for us and it is priceless. But as we gaze at the ring, we fall in love with the ring. We live for the ring. And we forget the one who has given us the ring. And when we forget God and fall in love with the things he has given us, we allow those things to control our lives, to shape our lives, to become our gods. We may not go out there and bow down and fall down literally to them, but in our hearts and our minds we're already down there on our knees before them. And the tragedy is we become like our gods. So if you make science your god, clinical analysis that is supposedly value-free, then you will end up with Dawkins, saying that if science tells you that your baby is going to be disabled, you abort it and try again. If you make racial superiority your god, you do end up exterminating those you think inferior. If you make the economy your God, then it really doesn't matter how you make money, whether gambling online or on the stock exchange, selling drugs or sex, 
charging excessive interest rates on payday loans, you become like your God, cold and hard and calculating. If you make yourself and your freedom to do what you want, your God, then it's all about you. And in the end, what happens to others doesn't really matter. If they die of Ebola in Liberia, it's tragic, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, not until, of course, we think it might come here. And when we worship the ring rather than the giver of the ring, and when we make things that are not God into God, into our idols, then as night follows day, disaster will happen. Paul speaks of it here as the wrath of God. So what can we learn from this small church to whom Paul wrote 2,000 years ago? How did the Christians of this small church live for God in a world of idols? How do we live for God in a world of invisible but very real idols? Firstly, only two things. We, this is a church which welcomed the word of God. Paul writes, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, verse 13, he writes, when you received the word of God, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. These were people who heard the message not only with their ears, but with their hearts. As Paul spoke to them of Jesus, something happened. They didn't just hear it here, they heard it here. The message came to them with power, we're told, with the Holy Spirit. That may be signs and wonders, I don't actually think it is here in this particular context. It seems verse 4 makes it clear, the evidence it came with power and the Holy Spirit is that it came with full conviction. People heard it and they thought, this is about me. They realised that they had been serving idols, they had made things that are not God into God and they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. What, what we're talking about here is triple listening. There, there's the listening of the ear. I'm good at this. I can listen to Alison telling me something, but if she then asks me what she has said, I don't know, because I've been thinking about something else. That's the kind of non-listening that gets you into big trouble. The second listening is when you listen here, and you do actually listen with your mind. You know, this is when Alison says, have you actually heard what I've said? And fortunately, I'm able to repeat it back to her, what she has said. But, but there's a third kind of listening. It's when we listen with our ears, with our mind, and with our hearts. It's when we listen to the Bible and know this is for me. It's when we realise that what's being said is not what the preacher is saying, but what God is saying. And that kind of listening is not something we can choose to do. We can put ourselves in the right place. The spiritual fathers and mothers of the past talk about being attentive to God, being watchful, waiting for him. But in the end, it is gift, and it happens to you. The fact that you are here today, if you're here for God, 
probably means it has begun to happen to you. And I pray and I ask you to pray that God would speak to the hearts of men and women in our town, that we would have the courage to speak of Jesus, of his death and his resurrection, of the forgiveness of sins, of the hope he gives us, of the fact that he is Lord, and that God would take those words so they stop being just facts out there and they become a reality in here. We can argue, we can persuade, we can plead, and we need to do that. But in the end, it is only God who converts the human heart. It's only God who shows us our sin, our idolatry. It's only God who shows us our need for him and his mercy and his strength and his hope. So pray. Pray for your friends, colleagues and neighbours. Pray that God will open the ears of their hearts to hear him. Pray they may see through the idolatry of the ring which tells us that now that we have the ring, we do not need the lover. Pray that they will see the idolatry of science or knowledge which says I'm all you need if you want to live in paradise. The idolatry of money which says get me and everything will be okay. Some of you may have heard the story on Friday morning of the couple who were about to go on holiday, forgot to buy their tickets with their usual lottery numbers, and missed out on £2 million. Please don't make the lottery, winning the lottery, your hope. That is idolatry. And don't make the idolatry of the individual, which says it's all about me being who I choose to be. God has made us in unique individuals. He has given us amazing stuff and he has given us minds to think and reason and imagine and analyse. But don't forget him. He's also given us his word to shape how we use those gifts, how we hold them together. And we need to bring them under the lordship, under the loveship of God. This was a church which had heard the word of God and received it. And secondly, this was a church which looked to the men and women of God of the past. I don't know whether you noticed how important the word imitate is in this passage. The Christians in Thessalonica become imitators of Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. In turn, they were imitators of Jesus Christ. And in turn, they become an example to others, so that you become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And in particular, Paul is thinking about their faithfulness to God in the face of suffering. Just as Jesus was faithful to God in the face of the cross, so they are faithful to God in the face of persecution. In 2.14, Paul writes, You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And so Paul says in verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, and your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. I wonder who are your Christian role models other traditions in the church speak of saints. In one sense, each person who has turned to Jesus is a saint. But in another sense, some people are so much further on that journey 
And we can look to them as examples of godliness, of courage, of perseverance. And we can seek to imitate them. So I think of a man called Ken Hooker, who was a retired minister in his 80s, in a village near Cambridge where I was on placement when I was uh, at Ridley at Theological College. Sixty years earlier, he had been president of the Cambridge Christian Union. And his love for the Lord and his desire to serve him was as keen and live at 80 as I know from what I heard that it had been when he was 20. Or I think of another 80-year-old when we were in Russia, Father Kirill. I saw him regularly. I didn't know him. But I knew his story, sentenced on three separate occasions to serve period sentences of 10 years, 10 years, and then 10 years in labor camps for being a priest. He was now the father confessor of the Orthodox Seminary where Alison and myself were living. He could have been hard, but he was one of those people whose face shone. And in turn, uh, actually, I, I say that, and then just literally, just uh, before the service, um, Dawn gave me a, a book, Tramp for the Lord, about Corrie Ten Boom, a lady who, uh, it's a sort of, she, she was uh, in a German prisoner of war camp uh, uh, where she was there because of her service for God. Uh, but, but that didn't stop there. She, she's gone on. Uh, and in her late 80s, she was still travelling the world, being a tramp for the Lord, going round preaching. Why? Why, when at the age of 80, maybe she could quite easily have settled at home? It was because she had this deep, deep passion for God and this deep desire for his word to be known. And in turn, would it not be wonderful if people spoke of the Christians in Bury St. Edmunds as Paul speaks of the Christians in Thessalonica. Look at them, at their faith-inspired works, their love-inspired grit, and their hope-inspired perseverance. Look at how they faithfully speak the word of God. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they are prepared to go on listening to the word of God, even when they suffer because of it. Look at how they live different lives with a different perspective. They don't live their lives centred on themselves. They don't put their ultimate trust in science or education or possessions. Instead, they seek to serve God and they long for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we live for God in an idol-obsessed world? It's very simple. We listen to the word of God. We allow the word of God to penetrate through our ears, through our minds, into our hearts. One of the desert fathers was asked, asked, what is harder, this water or this rock? And they said to him, well, obviously, the rock. But the father said, well, imagine water dripping on this jar, on, from this jar on this rock, day after day, month after month, year after year. Eventually, the rock will be broken. And he said in the same way, the human heart is hard and the word of God is soft. But allow it day after day, month after month, year after year, to drip away at your, at my hard heart. And it will break it. And secondly, we imitate the example of Jesus, of Paul, of the Thessalonian Christians, 
of the men and women who have suffered for their faith and who are today suffering for their faith. For the people like Ken Hooker, Father Kirill, uh, Corrie Tenbu. For the people who are living not for this world, not for themselves, not for the gods of this world, but who are living for him and for holiness and for the hope of heaven as we consciously choose to turn from our idols to serve the living and the true God. Oh, our dear Father, would you by your Holy Spirit come in and would you break our hearts and bring us before you and may we know your hope and your strength and your love. Amen.